0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Obviously, you've had a a great long story career as a sports writer. An accidental sports writer is actually, I think, one of the best. You know, sort of memoirs written in, in the field. I you know, read that a few years ago. Uh, you know, long career, lots of books. But I, I'm going to focus here for a few minutes on the, the whole ESPN thing. As you know, last couple of years, particularly with the Flakegate around here, there was a lot of heat locally on ESPN. You were the ombudsman before Brady. We've tried to get Brady on here. He doesn't really want a part of it for now, which I guess I can understand. But can you just walk me through the process of how you wound up as the ombudsman at ESPN?
2: I wish I could, Kirk. Um, I got a call. Uh, From uh, from a uh, now former ESPN executive named John Walsh, Mm -hmm. and he said, "Would you like to be on a shortlist?" Everybody wants to be on a shortlist, and and it turned out that uh, they were looking uh, for an ombudsman. I was the fifth one. I was not the first. Right, Uh, and it came at a a really interesting time in uh, their history. You know, the, the stormy relations with. Bill Simmons, Mm -hmm. the uh, blow-up over concussions with Goodell, uh, and and they're pulling out of a a PBS documentary, uh, domestic violence flaring, uh, and uh, their own struggle uh, with the bottom line, which is, as I came to understand, kind of what ESPN is about.
1: So you got—but you wound up getting hired and, you know— when you get hired, are you told, uh, you know, don't discuss this, don't do this, or are you given what you consider free reign?
2: No, I thought they were uh, they were they were very serious uh, about wanting uh, transparency. Uh, the idea was I was going to be ESPN's window washer. I was going to, you know, kind of clear the mud off the uh, uh, off the big windows and kind of give the audience an idea of what. ESPN was all about, how they made their decisions, and also kind of nudge ESPN in different directions. There were no confidentiality agreements. Uh, It was a very clear-cut year and a half so that nobody would get too comfortable with me Mm -hmm. or I wouldn't get too comfortable with them. And then we were off to the races. And, um, you know, there were things that I knew that they were uncomfortable with and that uh, several executives felt. That I had taken the wrong tack on things, but uh, there certainly was no attempt to to censor me. I, I think they were terrific in that regard.
1: How often did you write? How often were you asked to write? How often did you write?
2: Well, early on, I thought that I was going to, like, you know, write every day. I was going to blog. I was going to tweet. Um, I, I kind of withdrew from that, realizing that uh, an ombudsman is supposed to be a little more thoughtful, and I didn't want to be shooting from the hip every day in, a, in Twitter. Uh, and uh, it ended up being one, four or five or 6,000 word piece per month, a really long piece, sometimes just on one topic, such as the whole issue of why ESPN pulled out of its uh, NFL concussion documentary, League of Denial. The
1: front line, yeah.
2: Yeah, with uh, PBS. And I, I think that's never been totally explained. I think that ultimately a business decision was made, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not a journalism decision. A business decision was made that the uh, NFL was, you know, their largest, my goodness, revenue stream. Uh, and just at the time when the NFL was going into that case and it looked like the big you know class action suit from former ball players who had been brain damaged was going to go to the jury I think the last thing the NFL wanted was e, uh, ESPN's imprimatur on a really tough as it was PBS film uh, and pressure was, put on them. And I think that they, they backed off. I, I think the thing that I did not totally understand until I was in the belly of the beast was that ESPN, you know, really is a division of Disney. It really is a bottom line money making organization. And there's no real journalism in, in, in its DNA, you know, which is which is fine. No rap on them, except they do purport to be practicing journalism, which, you know, they do some very good stuff in different corners, but their main uh, goal is to, uh, you know, uh, pay uh, exorbitant rights fees uh, to make a lot of money uh, selling games. And, And part of the journalism is selling the games.
1: Well, I, I almost don't understand why they even waste their time having an ombudsman. Honestly, I mean, you know, I understand that I understand why they're doing it, how they think it might look if they have an ombudsman. But A, it seems like they're such a big enterprise that they really don't care. And B, I don't think it's, it's not as if they heed the things that are written by you or Brady or any of the other ombudsman. I almost think they do it so they can say they have it.
2: You know, I think I think there's something to be said, you know, that's true. And they also, you know, sponsor some very fine investigative journalism. Sure. They've got a couple of terrific T V shows like Outside the Line, some mm-hmm. great radio stuff like Jeremy Shop. Uh, but you know, I, I, I think ultimately they know what they are. I, I think that in my um, in my debriefing, my going away interview, you know that what what I took away from that was the general feeling was, you know, um, we get so much criticism for free. Why should we pay for it? <laughs> You know, I, I think that i i think to that credit they went and got another ombudsman um you know about a year later but uh i, I, I have to say i haven't been keeping up with them.
1: He's, uh, yeah, it's Jim. And, you know, the one thing about, Bra- around here especially, locally in New England, is this deflategate thing has blown up and ESPN's been criticized a lot around here. I don't know how much you paid attention to the journalistic aspect of it, but the guy who took a lot of heat around here was Mortensen for tweeting something, then not correcting the tweet, then never addressing it. So, around here, ESPN for the last year, year and a half, it's it just been crucified. And, you know, honestly, I don't really think ESPN cares that much about that.
2: Well, um now here, here, here's you know the question Kirk sure. does that crucification, um you know bring uh, eyeballs
3: right is that that's right
2: you know, you know is that clickbait so um, you know the idea somebody's idea that uh, there's no bad publicity and certainly uh, ESPN operates on controversy on, on one level mm-hmm. and that's you know the uh, embrace debate controversy sure it's going to be tough with uh, with Skip Bayless gone I mean who is uh, Stephen A. Smith going to
1: well they'll really find answer. some but, but to your point I mean it's just reality it's what I do too for a living you know we could talk about how great Outside the Lines is and they do some really good stuff we could talk about some other shows but the reality is if you put Outside the Lines on the same time you put First Take First Take is going to do a better rating I mean that's just human nature
2: yeah, and, and and you know the shows that are really popular like First Take, P.T.I., and the Horn, yeah. and, and Game Day. Now uh, you know Game Day is kind of a celebration of whatever game it is and and the college, uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and the town in which it happens. And it gets crazy and silly and Bill Murray. You know, I mean that that's kind of wonderful stuff. But uh, you can't have that and say we're really dedicated. To, to journalism. We're going to, you know, find out what really happened uh, at the flakegate And, you know, we're going to nail uh, Brady once and for all. Come on. Right.
1: When you So do you feel like what you said or what you wrote or why you were there, do you feel like you made any impact at all? No. In the SP? None?
2: No. No, I really don't. Uh, I, I don't think I, I did it did at all. And certainly now that um, – a generation, except for Skipper, who I rather admire, I, I, the president of ESPN, John Skipper, seems like a really fine stand-up man, and a man named Patrick Stigman, who was kind of my handler. Um, but, I mean, a whole generation of older uh, ESPN executives, many of whom came out of real journalism, are gone. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's more of you know, people who have degrees in sports marketing.
1: What was, so what was your, if you could crystallize it, and I read your, your, you know, your two-part farewell thing, if you had two or three real criticisms when you left ESPN, was that it? Not enough journalism? Were there other criticisms that you would say?
2: I think the main thing was not enough journalism, and basically I thought that ESPN was in a terrific position to do something positive. I don't think they do much positive. Um, I mean, being an ombudsman, Kirk, is, is kind of like being a moral philosopher. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty pretentious, but you know, you're supposed to, you know, uh, you know, stand above the fray and, and and say these, you know, this this wise, you know, nonsense. But uh, one of the things I really thought it could do, I had this idea. That I mean, it's an international organization. And it's always talking about uh, LGBT rights and minority rights. And, you know, it's kind of jumping into good causes in that kind of wonderfully superficial way that corporations can. And so, okay, uh, how about, you know, making a network uh, of high schools around the country uh, in which you would sponsor some sort of journalism? And, uh, you know, the local ESPN talent, you know, could drop in there, you know, once a month or something like that to encourage the teacher and the kids. Uh, you know, from a pragmatic point of view, you would certainly be stimulating more readers and uh, viewers, but you would also, you know, create a pipeline.
1: A farm system, of, right.
2: Of young, of young journalists who could come and, you know, someday maybe inform Uh, I mean, it's great to have well-meaning guys, you know, who played college or pro football, you know, pontificate. But it's always better if you have people who really kind of grew up in some kind of, you know, different or minority community uh, to ask the right questions. I really like that idea. And just just the way it was kind of dismissed out of hand made me realize that, you know, they don't stand for much. uh, And it's too
1: bad. What bothers me now is, you know, and you said you're not keeping uh, up much with the current ombudsman. You know, you see things like Kurt Schilling, who I'll I'll say, full disclosure, is a weekly guest on our show, was fired for uh, politically motivated tweets. You could say, absolutely. You know, he, he knew the deal. He decided to go for it, and they got rid of him. But there is an idea out there that ESPN is bent more toward the liberal way of thinking. They have plenty of on-air talent who tweet out things that are, you know, anti-Trump. or. And wherever you stand, there seems to be a real inconsistency right now politically. With where ESPN is, would you say that's a fair? What would you yeah. if, if you were going to handle if you were going to tackle the Schilling debate? You're going to do three thousand words on that. You know, you're going to sit down. Where would your take be right now on ESPN? Well, politics? I mean, I, I,
2: I, think, I think that you know uh, Schilling obviously and, and always has been you know kind of a jerk.
1: No, well, that's I don't think that's true. That I don't think that's, think th- that's, th- that's true. Well, I do think that. Do you true. know him? It's not
2: about it's not about his politics.
1: Do you know the man? Yeah, do you sure think he's I a guess. jerk? When has he been the jerk yeah, to you right. in the past? I
2: thought he was kind of a jerky guy. I, I didn't, I, I didn't think that he, you know, really was thinking straight about much of anything. Like what? But here's my point. Here's no, but
1: my, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: No, no, I, I want to make this yeah, point. Yeah, go, ahead, go and, ahead. And that, and that's that. You know, you can defend Kurt on your time. Sure. But the, the the point I want to make is that I think that he has a right to his politics. Yeah. And you know, certainly on his own time, I think that where he ran into a problem and they really get crazy at ESPN. of oh, this is you know any kind of hint of defiance of rebelliousness right. you know uh, and the other thing i want to talk about is 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 liberal politics i think there's a difference between liberal politics which you know, i don't know per, you know progressive or fairness or decency and you i mean you are you are, and, you and are trendiness, right right and trending okay yeah and i i think that espn uh, kind of skews towards that kind of transiting. So, so if, if anything seems faintly, faintly uh, racial or sexist or in some sort of gender bias, there's a kind of uh, you know, snap response. My favorite uh, of all of this was uh, Rush Limbaugh. Okay, if you hire Rush Limbaugh, you really know, who are you going you to know what at? you're
1: getting, yes. You know right. what you're getting, right?
2: And uh, then he went and said that um, the a black quarterback,
1: Don uh, McNabb. Yeah,
2: yeah, right. Uh, something that, by the way, I might have agreed with, right? But you know, the, the fact that um, that lib, you know, liberal, whatever he you know, construes as liberal sports writers uh, were hoping that he would do well because you know they were behind you know, minority quarterbacks. Something, something, to
1: your point, something that Limbaugh would big, say every day on the, the air. Right.
2: You know, what's the big deal about that?
1: Right.
3: You
2: know, first of all, if, if that's what liberal sports writers feel, great. And calling them out, um, you know, especially if you have any kind of information that they're kind of skewing their stories to McNabb and, uh, you know, making them look better, that's great. You know, I, I thought that, uh, you know, once once you agreed that uh, Rush was a, a you know a, a proper hire. Uh, I thought that they were absolutely wrong. In firing him for what he said. Well, what I would say, which, is, which I think, right. which I think is an arguable
1: point. Well, I would say though, you know, the, it, the exact same thing with Schilling. You knew what you were getting. You had a long history of being active on social media, uh, right wing. My thing is, if ESPN is going to embrace debate, you can agree or disagree. You could think he's a jerk. You could think he's crazy. Bring somebody on who disagrees with him and have an honest debate about these things on ESPN. I mean, why not? That's what I don't understand.
2: I, you know, I I agree with you totally and down the line, and I think that almost anything that anybody has ever said on ESPN that they got punished for, had it been kind of, you know, honestly unpacked, and, uh, you know, you could have moderated, you know, sat down and talked it out, it would have been interesting. It would have been fine. But, I mean, it's so easy to just kind of, you know, snap into uh, – you know, I mean, it's it's like, um, you, know, uh, you know, Caitlyn Jenner is right. you know, uh, the uh, hero of the year. Arthur Ashe Award. Ash so. Yeah, I don't know how you feel on that, but I, I think know. it's
1: I think it's a little I I, I think it's I think you of get into semantical stuff there. Do I think it took mm-hmm. courage for Caitlyn Jenner at this point in history with absolutely no media blowback? Does that take courage? I think that's. I think you start getting a semantical battle. For me, the answer to that would be no. There are a lot more people, a lot more courageous than her. But, you know, I, I wouldn't have given her, given her the her No, no, I, no. And I, yeah. I agree with you totally. I think you're absolutely right. And
2: and that's what I'm talking about by trendy versus liberal.
1: Right. Sometimes ESPN has take a deep breath and say, does it make sense at the time? I feel like they don't do that. They rush to sort of get what I call Twitter applause. You know, you win the day on Twitter when you do stuff like right. that. How about, uh, what do you think when you put on ESPN right now, if you're flipping around and you see, uh, I don't know, Jay Billis and Adam Schefter uh, in some, superimposed in some movie promotion? Do you find that to be an issue or no?
2: Yeah, well, yeah. You know, I, I had problems with their, uh, with their advertising. The commercials that they did a few years ago where you know, sports figures would come in and kind of grab ass with talent you know, and reporters. I mean, my, you know, it was cute. I thought some of them were really good. But the point was, you know, don't don't sell yourself as a journalistic enterprise. Don't keep telling me that this is where we come to get the truth, you know, when you're so in bed. And so obviously in bed with, uh, you know, so many teams and leagues. And, and, I mean, you know, you also have networks in which, you know, you own bowl games and you own, uh, conferences in a sense. Uh, I mean, um, you, you know, conflict of interest is too flabby a term to apply to ESPN. Yes. It, it, that's really their DNA conflict of interest uh, on the same time. Well, you know, for a lot of things, uh, that's where you want to go, um, to see games. That's where I go to see games. Well, that's right. uh, it's not where I go to get information.
1: Do you get, do you get the feeling, having been there, let's just play a scenario where some reporter reports something about the NFL they don't like. Do you think ESPN, if Roger Goodell, and it's not this simple, where the NFL said, fire this guy's ass right now, ESPN would find a way to do it?
2: <sighs> I don't know.
1: I really don't know. Do you think that they're that that willing to to, to bend over for the NFL, which basically right now rules the world? Or it feels like it does.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that you could, you know, in a a dark, uh, semi-drunk moment, uh, you know, with with the leadership at ESPN, uh, they could explain to you that they uh, have—it's not really about bending over for the NFL— It's about being responsible for your shareholders uh, and your stakeholders and for the people who work for you. So to endanger the whole um, uh, corporation for something that might seem... Um, like oh a self-indulgent principle would not be fair to them. I think that's how they would you know actually the truth is that's how they have would that be there would <laughs> that, that be their
1: me. would that be their Simmons defense which one Bill Sim well is that why they I mean Simmons called out Goodell you know famously in that podcast yeah. basically that was the end is that is it would that be their defense they would say you know what we just can't have a guy. Calling out the commissioner recklessly, so we have to do that. I mean, is that what they would tell you privately, or what would they say if you well, got somebody I, I, if you got somebody privately and said, "Why did you get rid of Simmons?" What would they say?
2: Well, I think I think that um, I, I, my, my feeling was that you know uh, Bill goes back and forth between you know being uh, you know, a loose cannon and being a responsible journalist, right. and I, I think that my feeling was if you call Goodell a liar. Uh, you really should have video of his pants on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could say, you could you could kind of list all the ways in which what he said, you know, makes no sense or doesn't sound like the truth. That's that's good, uh, but you know, that was. I I don't think that that that's what got him ultimately fired. I I think it was the daring. ESPN to do something about it mm-hmm. I mean uh, you know, there's a, a kind of willful adolescence about Bill Simmons you know uh, give me the keys to the car dad <laughs> you know <laughs> he always kind of he, he, he was treating people you know like like they were his dad there and that they had to do uh, what he wanted I, I think that was ultimately the real issue uh, plus the fact plus the fact you know, always followed the money. Um, I don't think he was bringing in big bucks. Yeah, I guess that's right. Right,
1: right, right. Grandland, mean, Grandland was not making a lot of money, right? No, that yeah. was
2: making no money. The podcasts weren't making any money. He was lousy on television. He cost $5 million a year himself. And, you know, the one thing that he got credit for, which he, you know, great credit, 30 for 30, um, you know, it's not like he invented sports documentaries. You know, HBO, anybody? So, um, and and it, by the way, the, the, their current offering is the best sports documentary I've ever seen, which is the uh, seven and a half hour OJ. Right. Which you,
1: which I want to get into because you're in, you're you're you're, you're yes. part of that as well. I'll get to that in a second. But the uh, but but the one last thing on Simmons is you've kind of but you've done sort of a one eighty on Simmons, right? You didn't like him much at first, and now you is that is that fair to say or no?
2: Well, I came to appreciate, you know, his talent, his guts, his uh, loyalty to his people. There are a lot of positives about him. Um, I'm I'm not uh, great on him as a performer. I don't think he's much of a journalist. I, I'm not sure that he has added all that much uh, to the mix. But uh, oh,
1: maybe not then. It, I, okay, I thought I thought because I I, when I, when I read the book and I read the book a few years ago. Am I wrong in that you were critical of Simmons in the book or? Yes. Yeah, an accident. I thought. Oh, maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you would come around from that point to now. That's that yeah, would not
2: be. Well, no, I mean, you know, yeah. I, 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 think that you know, I, I think I used somebody, Dave Zirin's line that he was, uh, you know, a uh, hundred yards wide and an inch thick, inch deep, um, and and I think that that you know was pretty much true. But I did think that he grew, and I think that um, I think Grantland was a fine, really fine piece of. Uh, a uh, piece of work it was a great magazine it uh, it really gave a chance for a lot of really good writers to work uh, he's recapitulating it now at the ringer mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I and that came afterwards um after my criticism was about six seven years ago
1: was there any on-air talent, last couple ones of on the ESPN, any on-air talent to the ESPN that you wanted to talk to? Anyone who wouldn't talk to you during the process of being an ombudsman if you wanted to write something down? Or was everybody uh, open to conversation?
2: Well, there, there were a couple of people, and they were uh, almost um, overwhelmingly uh, college and former pro- college and professional players.
1: Who wouldn't talk I mean, to you?
2: Uh, Yeah, the on-air talent, the uh, reporters, everybody responded. And, uh, you know, a couple of them did try to blow me off. And I just kind of went back at them and I said, you know, listen, I'm the ombudsman. I'm not some, you know, newspaper man who's going to slink away. Uh, I'm going to stay on this. I'm going to stay at you. And I think it's your advantage uh, to give me your point of view. And in every case, they came around. But they were the only ones who you know, who kind of routinely felt that uh, you know reporters were green flies to be swatted? Sure.
1: Away. Yeah, he get that all the time. The uh, the o. we o. know Do- about that. Yes, yes. The OJ uh, the OJ documentary. Here's here's my take on it. and I, I really want to hear yours. And it got I've never seen praise for a documentary like this ever. Universal praise. And maybe it's because I've read books and I paid attention to the story. I would say for me. Seven and a half hours might have been a little a little thick. I think you could have done it all maybe in an hour or two less. Particularly, I mean, maybe it's just because I know the history of O.J. Simpson as a player, and I know a little bit with the history of Los Angeles Police Department, but the first couple of parts for me were a little slow, and then parts three, four, five, I thought it really got cooking. Would you say that's a fair criticism or no?
2: Right. I, I think that's a fair criticism, but I think, um, I, I think you're operating from uh, – a kind of level of sophistication that you really can't apply to the the rest of America and certainly not to younger right, people. Right.
1: That's you're exactly right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, too much. so You you can't make those kind of, you know, judges. Yeah. I mean, sure. Everything can be tightened up. But um, I, I and then, of course, and, and you're right, certainly as. You know, he opened up the story towards the end. Some, you know, amazing stuff about the trial and about, you know, uh, the way that some of his old friends began to, you know, really question him. You know, I I thought it was great reporting, and um, you know, I, I uh, I, I thought he did a great job. Did you talk to? Did you talk to Edelman?
1: Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: What was interesting for me was I had just come off, you know, all the Ali Ali stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, it's been a lot of programs. I was really kind of, I'll uh, lead out.
1: And you wrote the long profile for Time Magazine, am I right in saying that or no?
2: I, well, I wrote the New York Times yeah. uh, front page of it. I did the Time Magazine right. mm-hmm. and, and all the shows and like that. Yep. And, and uh, you know, I thought I knew everything. But then, you know, watching the whole O.J. thing, I came to the realization Uh, Maybe you knew this already, but I came to the realization that O.J. really got his big break because he was the anti-Ali. That, you know, just at a time when uh, the American establishment was really kind of worried about what they, you know, perceived incorrectly, you know, as the threatening black athlete, here came, uh, you know, a guy who just wanted to be friends, didn't want to identify himself as an African-American. In fact, when I asked O.J. Um, about, you know, uh, uh, his movie career, you know, he, he was, you know, this is 1969, he was, you know, pretty sure he was going to be a big Hollywood actor. And what he was not going to do, he was not going to offer the, and this is his words, the hard black anger of Jim Brown. Right. Now, Jim Brown, and Smith, you know, Ali, uh, Kareem. Lador. Russell, yeah. I mean, these, these were, you know, Bill Russell. He, he was the guys that scared, you know, of uh, mm-hmm. the ownership in white America. And O.J. was the guy who said, hey, everything's going to be all right. You know, just just hang with me, you know, and make me an honorary white guy.
1: What kind of, was that your only uh, uh, conversation with Simpson? Did you talk to him later on in his career or post-football career? I did, career?
2: but I, I never had again... I never had, you know, six, seven hours you yeah. know, sitting just the two of us alone in a bar.
1: Did you get the sense that he strike you as somebody who was intelligent or, or no?
2: I, I yeah. I, I, first of all, i got to tell you, I liked him enormously. Yeah. Uh, he was charming. He was uh, witty. Um, I thought that he was, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I, 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 we probably do the same thing. We, we probably have different judgments, you know. The guy is, is intelligent, or he's intelligent for an athlete.
1: Yeah, right. Of course, yes. Yes, yeah. both. Yeah. And,
2: and he, and I thought he was very intelligent for an athlete. It, you know, he was a quick study, and he was one of those people, uh, like Ali and Trump, mm-hmm. you know, who can be with you for five minutes and and read you. And know what it was you wanted to hear. Oh, you're right-wing, you're left-wing, you're a bleeding heart, you're a tough guy, you know? Right. And and so he, he kind of got that right away. And um, so I, I I thought he was really an interesting guy. But I also really, uh, the word that was bleeped out in the, uh, I, I thought that he was, uh, he was messed, he was messed up.
1: Yeah, he was. You could say whatever you want here. Yeah, he was. He was pretty fucked up, OJ.
2: Yeah, yeah. But I, what do you mean? You, I, you I, thought I thought, said on you thought at yeah, the, when, when thought at the on time. The, yeah, yeah. I, I did, remember. it, Yeah, on the documentary, uh, I realized he was fucked. Yeah, I, 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 I knew his mind was really totally fucked. If, if he really didn't, uh, you know, identify as a black man, that's his right. Uh, although a lot of black men disagree with that. But if he thought that. America would not identify as a black man. He was in big trouble.
1: Yeah, but but one could argue though that that I mean you know white middle America was really comfortable with OJ Simpson in 1975 or 1980. Well, they
2: created you know, but but you know, and that I mean was you didn't see good...
1: you, you didn't see Jim Brown jumping over uh, you know uh, uh, couches at airports and commercials in 1975.
2: Yeah, but you know that was you know that was created. That was almost like well, a psychological sure. warfare. Sure, I mean the guy the guy talked about how they made sure that there was no blacks in the audience in the airport. These were all, you know, really um, white people who might have been threatened, you know, a little old lady, some nuns, Cub scouts, you know,
3: go O.J., go O.J.,
2: you know, uh, all loving him so we could love him. Too. I mean, that was the whole idea to create this totally non-threatening African American, oh. and and uh, they did it. So it was as much of the marketing around him uh, as him. And you know, to this day, and you. Um, you know these guys to this day you know network guys who worked with him you know uh, are heartbroken over what happened they loved him you know they, they felt that they were in this testosterone shower when they walked down the halls with him they felt studly and he was a very loyal friend i mean he he, he treated people men he treated men that he worked with as if they were his offensive line. teammates you know, he right. gave them rolexes right. and remembered their kids birthdays
1: Right. Let me ask you this, because you wrote a couple of these. I read that actually read the Time magazine one a couple of nights ago. Did you think that there was some uh, people were guilty of almost canonizing Ali that you didn't get the whole thing? I, I you know, uh, somebody in the Globe a couple of weeks ago wrote. Uh, a piece in reference to a 1968 interview that he did with Bud Collins, Ali, where he said that, you know, white women and black people uh, can't get along, that white women and black and black men and black women and white men shouldn't get married. And Ali changed as he got older. But I feel like when I read a lot of these opits a couple of weeks ago, I didn't get the full entire scope of Ali, that the negatives were kind of pushed aside. We only focus on the positives. Would you agree with that or no?
2: Yeah, I, I I think that certainly towards the end he was beatified. Right. Uh, I I think it was uh, not my line, but I, uh, but somebody called him America's teddy bear, and, and in a sense, uh, the his past was sanitized.
1: Yeah, but do you think that's that's almost doing? I think. In a weird oh, that's way, doing doing a
2: great—that's great, doing a great disservice, not only to him, history but I to think, him.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It Does him a discredit because I think it shows it doesn't show that he progressed, that he got smarter and thought about right. things, and that's sort of you want to paint the whole picture, don't you, as a writer?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I totally feel it. I mean, that—that's really what I, you know, hoped that I had done. Right. But I mean, because I got a lot of criticism, excuse me, a lot of criticism for the fact that I, you know, there were too many warts. Uh, you know, <laughs> warts and all. There were too many warts in the Time Magazine, uh, right? That's what's in the big, right. in the big piece. Yeah, uh, you know the standalone book. But um, you know, I, I think that abs- you're absolutely right. I mean, when when he won the title in 1964, he was 22 years old, and he had done nothing in his life since he was 12 except box. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he had been poorly educated. He was ignorant. He was very narrow, and uh, and now uh, all of a sudden, you know, people are asking him these heavy questions. Well, he, he you know, he, he was in no place to do that. And then he got involved with this cultish, uh, you know, group, uh, this kind of you know splinter group that was segregationist, uh, that was anti-civil rights, and. Um, it really took, and, and, and also he walked away from Malcolm, which I always thought was you know, one of the great sins of his life. And it, and it, it took him a really long time you know, to grow into a more mature and uh, educated human. Actually, what, what did it for him was the three years in which he couldn't box, the only way he could make any money at all was going on the college circuit. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the beginning, he, he, I went with him. He was terrible. You know, he would, you know, read chunks of Muslim dogma. Everybody fell asleep. And and then he would antagonize his audience, you know, by making fun of uh, black and white couples or wrinkling his nose at marijuana, which everybody, you right. know, was smoking right. on their campuses. Uh, but it was in the question and answer periods, you know, where they asked him very tough questions, which at first he couldn't really answer, you know, like, where is Vietnam? But um, eventually... You know, he came to quick study that he was. He talked to people. He talked to these kids. And and really, as you point out, truly, he he evolved into, uh, I think, ultimately, a, a fairly admirable human being who, unfortunately, like a lot of athletes, you know, didn't know when to quit, but you
1: know who knows when to quit. Sure, but I just you, you, no. Of, of course, you're right. But I just think it's I just think it's dangerous if you're a, a twenty twenty two year old kid doesn't know much about Ali, he dies, or a sixteen year old kid, and you read. Let's say you don't read yours, but you read a handful of obits and opinion pieces around the country, you would have no idea about the other stuff in Ali's life, and that just that that just strikes me as wrong. I mean, it just strikes me as crazy. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know his. Um his his best biographer Tom Hauser, you know, says that he, you know, pretty much through his life had the emotional sensibilities of a 12 year old.
3: Right, I read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and
2: and Tom, and, you know, Tom tells this, you know, really crazy story, that uh, Tom had just broken up with a girlfriend, a very attractive woman, and he's sitting with uh, Lonnie and Ali, and Lonnie says, you know, you know, where where is she and Tom said, well, you know, we're not together anymore. Why? Why didn't you marry her? And Tom said, well, I didn't love her. And uh, Ali said, well, I don't love Lonnie, and I married her. And, and to Tom, that was, you know, kind of, you know, typical typical Ali, kind of, you know, emotionally stunted. How do you say right. that in front of your wife? <laughs> right.
1: <Tom said? laughs> right, If ESPN calls you today and said, we want to bring you back as ombudsman, would you say yes or no?
2: Say that again.
1: ESPN calls you today. They, they at the end of this podcast. ESPN calls you and says, you know what? We want to do this again. We liked having you here another 18 months. Do you say yes or do you say no?
2: Um, this is before or after God asked me to be the czar of all sports in the world.
1: <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Yes.
2: Well, yeah, sure. I, I would, loved yeah. the job. It was interesting. Uh, but, um, you know, unless there was some sort of, uh, you know, signed paper that uh, they had changed, I think it, it it would not be a happy experience.
1: Changed? What do you mean? Just, again, the journalistic part of it, or just changed what?
2: Well, I, I think that they would have to really uh, make more of a commitment to journalism. They would really have to be the place that America would look to. You know, th- there's one more thing. Yeah. They, they kind of know their audience, so as ombudsman, I got you know a thousand emails a month mm-hmm. and i I tried to read them all and I would say that the the heart of the audience, at least the ones who who emailed me uh, were white Christians in um you know in in our corridor in our northeast corridor mm-hmm. and and a little towards uh uh the southeast okay and and the major complaint, and, and they were complaining, was that social issues, quote, that was the phrase, social issues, um, you know, pushed its way into their living rooms via ESPN.
1: No, I agree with Here they that. are, they're right.
2: all sitting in what they consider their sanctuary, their safe place. The whole family is watching ESPN, um, and all of a sudden... You know, um, we have to hear about domestic violence. We have to hear about you know minority rights. We have to hear about things we don't want to hear about. And then, what really set them off, you know, was the kiss. Uh, oh, Sam, remember Mike, Michael Sam. Mm-hmm. When Michael Sam was drafted, uh, the first uh, openly gay pro football player drafted, mm-hmm. uh, he he grabbed his partner. And, and kissed him on camera. It was the longest kiss since The Princess Bride. <laughs> right. And it just went on and on and on. You know, I mean, I, I, I could just, I watched it. And I said, holy mackerel. I could imagine, you know, the director in the truck saying, stay on it, stay on it, stay on it. Right. You know, and, uh, I, you know, I, I think they would have broken away had it been a heterosexual. No question. Princess. No question. So um, so my my feeling was, on the one hand, it you know, Again, you know, call it trending, call it liberal, whatever you want. You know, there would be, um, there's kind of a tendency to kind of uh, dismiss these people who want the sanctuary of their living room. But I think they deserve the sanctuary of their living room. You know, kiss them and get it over with, uh, as, as you would kiss anybody. But uh, if ESPN is selling itself as this family-oriented place, where we can sit and watch sports, then it has to really think about what it's you know pushing uh, in people's face without you know some trigger warnings. At
1: it, uh, it, it, your age now, you've been I, doing... I guess that doesn't no. sound liberal enough for you. Uh, yeah, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I was expecting you to uh, say that you love that kiss, that you wanted to see more <laughs> of that kiss. You're disappointing me. You have to t- turn to your New York Times badge. And it, uh, it, 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 you know, at your age now, you've been writing forever. Uh, is there a part of you now that says, eh, I, do you enjoy writing? Did you enjoy writing the Ali piece as much as you wrote? Enjoyed writing an Ali piece, say, 30 years ago? Do you still like writing as much as you did before? Well, or or loathe it? I mean, I'm sure it's a love-hate relationship. It was
2: hard. I mean, it was hard. It was kind of bittersweet because, I mean, I, I've been covering Muhammad Ali for 52 years. Right. So in the beginning, it was pure joy. It was just kind of really fun. And it was also, it felt revolutionary because most of the. Uh, particularly the boxing writers, were, were much older. So I was like around Ali's age, right? and we bonded, and, um, and and we got along. I spent a lot, a lot of time with him, and, and I felt like we were both kind of growing up together in the business. Right. You know, all these years later, uh, writing about Ali is, is kind of bittersweet. Well, I guess, yeah, I, I, I,
1: right. I, I, mess, I guess I, I did the phrase it. Do you enjoy the process of writing as much I as you do? I love it. Did? You still it, it, do? It, yeah. You know, yeah. don't tell
2: my wife, but there's nothing I would rather do.
1: <laughs> so what are you doing now? What's the next, I don't know, year look like for you? Well, Assuming I'm, ESPN doesn't call, which I don't think is going to happen.
2: Yeah, right. No, you'll right. you'll have to broker that <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, I'll work on that. you get a to find your Yeah, good. Uh, I'm working on a, a, a novel with mm-hmm. a sports background, uh, and... Um, and kind of uh, enjoying the summer of the, uh, it, it's kind of wonderful because this is the first time in many, many years, you know, where I didn't have some sort of job or outside obligation. And it's really nice to wake up in the morning and your mind is free to think about whatever you want.
1: Excellent. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your uh, summer morning to join us, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Robert.
2: Thank you, Kirk. That was fun.
1: Thanks. I appreciate that. All right, thanks as always for listening to the Enough About Me podcast. If you want more podcasts like this with guests like Artie Lang, where, who else is going to have Artie Lang and fucking Bob Ryan on the same podcaster? David Portnoy and uh, John Tomasi. If you want to listen to podcasts like this, you go to iTunes, Stitcher, you go to WI.com you go to the mobile app. When you go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. That's going to help us out a lot. If you want more of these, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. Make sure you do that for me. That is a command. Now
0: do it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on What's in Your Podcast queue.